Ladies and gentlemen, uh, good morning. My name is Fred Hoff, and I'm a senior fellow at the Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East of the Atlantic Council. Uh, my, role, my role this morning is, uh, is rather limited. It's one of welcoming you to the Atlantic Council, uh, thanking you uh, for having taken the time to attend a program dealing with an important aspect of the problem from hell uh, that is Syria. And then my role is to uh, get out of the way so that my colleague, Faisal Itani, can moderate a discussion about one facet of an Assad regime political survival strategy uh, that has helped to produce in Syria the signature humanitarian abomination of the 21st century. Uh, before I turn things over to Faisal, however, I'd like to draw your attention to the latest report of the International Independent Commission of Inquiry. Our subject today is sieges, but on the 3rd of February, the Commission of Inquiry submitted to the Human Rights Council a report entitled, Out of Sight, Out of Mind, Deaths in Detention in the Syrian Arab Republic. Now, as is its custom, the Commission of Inquiry spared no one in its analysis. Not ISIL, not the Nusra Front, not other armed groups. But the bulk of its report dealt with the policies and practices of a Syrian Arab Republic government still recognized by the United States of America. According to the report, and I quote, detainees held by the government were beaten to death or died as a result of injuries sustained due to torture. Others perished as a consequence of inhumane living conditions. The government has committed the crimes against humanity of extermination, murder, rape, or other forms of sexual violence, torture, imprisonment, and forced disappearance and other inhuman acts. Based on the same conduct, war crimes have also been committed." Unquote. Extermination. This is a word normally associated with the elimination of vermin. We're going to hear today about extermination, albeit in the form of open-air detention centers affecting, according to our speakers, some one million Syrian civilians. Extermination is also inflicted in the form of aerial bombing, employing munitions that are both indiscriminate and precise. It is this form of extermination that the Russian Federation employs in its current campaign to eliminate all Syrian military and political alternatives to the Assad regime and ISIS. 
Our subject today, however, is sieges. As the recently suspended Geneva peace negotiations were about to begin in late January, there was a flurry of activity and reports about the besieged town of Medaya. The images of emaciated children shocked the world. With peace talks set to start, American officials reportedly assured the leaders of the Syrian opposition that progress in the protection of Syrian civilians was all but assured, that the opposition could come to Geneva secure in the knowledge that its constituents in Syria would be feeling a near-term measure of relief. This led many in the opposition to believe uh, that some of these sieges would either be lifted or at least relaxed. These hopes, however, were dashed. Whatever assurances Secretary of State John Kerry thought he had from his Russian counterpart, they proved empty. The sieges remained in place and Russia launched a major air offensive in the direction of Aleppo in support of Iranian-led militia forces and the Syrian army. Civilian losses associated with that campaign have been high. Refugees fearing the encirclement and eventual besieging of Aleppo by regime ground forces and fearing also the door-to-door -door atrocities sure to follow have surged toward NATO's southern flank, Turkey. The UN Special Envoy suspended the peace talks even before they had begun. I think, I think it's fair to say there are senior people in the US government who are as disappointed as I have been over the years with the American response to a campaign of extermination now about to enter its fifth year. And now with the Russian Air Force helping Assad's army seize additional populated areas, we can expect the toll among civilians, unfortunately, to rise sharply. When Samantha Power wrote her masterpiece, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, I do not believe her intent was to suggest that generic extermination gets a buy. That genocide is the only form, the only subset of extermination that merits serious effort to protect innocent civilians. When she said that American political leaders interpret society-wide silence as an indicator of public indifference, that they spin themselves about the nature of the violence in question and the likely negative impact of an American intervention, that they insist that any proposed US response would be futile, perhaps even doing more harm than good, that there will be no costs if the US remains uninvolved, but steep risks 
with engagement when she listed all of the alibis and all of the excuses for inaction in the 20th century. She may as well have been writing in 2002 about a future administration's policy towards Syria. After nearly five years, the administration has protected not a single Syrian person in Syria from an Assad regime using extermination as its primary tool for political survival. My colleague uh, Faisal will now moderate a discussion that I'm afraid will not be enjoyable in an entertainment sense. Uh, it will, I think, be interesting and informative. Again, thank you all uh, for joining us this morning. And Faisal, over to you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Fred, and uh, thank you all for joining us. Welcome to the Atlantic Council. I think uh, Fred's given a comprehensive and suitable introduction, so I'll just jump straight into the point. Today, we're going to examine the scope and the implications of sieges as a tactic of war in Syria. That means looking at the situation on the ground with someone who spent quite a bit of time there, as well as giving a sort of larger picture analytical examination of the situation. And finally, we're going to look at the policy implications for the international community of what's unfolding on the ground in Syria. In that end, we have three distinguished speakers with us. You have their complete biographies, I believe, so I'll be very brief in my introduction. Dr. Mohammed Katoub on my left is a protection officer at the Syrian American Medical Society. He's also a public relations director for the United Media Office of Opposition Held Eastern Ghouta in the Damascus countryside, of which he is actually a native. To his left is uh, Valerie Zibala. She is the executive director of the Syria Institute, Washington-based research, research institution and think tank. And she is also the author of the excellent report, Slow Death, Life and Death in Syrian Communities Under Siege. And finally, last but not least, Mr. Yanyap Van Oosterzee. He is the Middle East policy lead at PAX, an international peace organization for which I have a great deal of respect. Each of our speakers will speak for about 10 minutes and then we'll go to question and answer session. You may actually also join the conversation on Twitter with the handle at, Mideast, at AC Mideast, rather, sorry, with hashtag AC Syria and hashtag Siege Watch. You can also submit questions for the Q&A session via Twitter using those, uh, those hashtags and handle in either English or Arabic. Uh, and we'll address those uh, during Q&A to the extent possible. So without further ado, let me uh, move to you, Dr. Katoub. Thank you very much. Thank you, Faisal. Yeah, thank you for coming uh, to hear me. I'm uh, Mohamed Katoub. I'm a dentist from uh, Douma. It's uh, 500,000 uh, population town, just 10 kilometers away from the capital Damascus in Syria. Uh, I uh, was graduated from uh, Damascus uh, University and I work as a dentist till the revolution began when the when the industry became not a priority so the main priority of people just to survive just to save their lives 
So I worked in the medical office of uh, Eastern Ghouta, which is a local organization supporting the health system inside uh, my area, uh, which is completely besieged now. Uh, I live there and my decision with my wife uh, to live there and not to leave, uh, to share people uh, their pain, to try to help them. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, I could be no more in 2014, the summer, and I decided to leave. I cannot forget that night when we decided to leave. I came back home after a long day of working in uh, the hospital. I was working as a logistic and public relation, uh, and I found my, my wife crying. And I asked what, what the matter, she said, come on and see. But my my, my uh, one year old uh, son was bleeding because not because of uh, of shelling or bombing because he had no diapers and we were using plastic bags instead of diapers. Have no milk. We have to to feed him with anything uh, that we have. Uh, it, it it took about two weeks that time in Eastern Ghouta to find one egg just to give him some protein to to to, to feed him. Uh, so we decided to leave. I took the way. Uh, actually, for a family, it's a little bit easier to go through the checkpoints uh, at Damascus, the capital, the checkpoints of the regime. So we paid a little money and she could survive to Beirut. But I have to walk because it's too dangerous for me as I'm working in the medical uh, sector. Uh, the regime considered the doctors who are uh, treating people as uh, terrorists. Uh, so I walked about 35 kilometers till I arrived at the desert, walking, uh, trying to avoid mines, snipers, uh, helicopters monitoring the roads. You can imagine all of that just, just to prevent food to come for these people inside. And I could survive, arrive to Jordan, and then I worked with Sam's. Uh, the organization uh, uh, which I had partnership when I was inside Isunguta, I, I worked with them and I'm working as a protection officer. And actually it's not the first time for me here in the United States. Uh, what happened that I landed in the United States the first time in my life last year, February the 9th. And I landed the third time also February the 9th yesterday. So it's a year now, talking about the same thing. Nothing happened, nothing changed. It's like anniversary for me, first time here in the United States. But I hate anniversaries because in Eastern Ghouta, there is a different type of anniversaries. Like we celebrate the second anniversary of the Kemetal Maskar in Eastern Ghouta. It was last August, you know. Uh, we celebrate the third anniversary of living without electricity. You can imagine three years and a half now without electricity. Last November was the third anniversary. And actually, we celebrate. I'm, I'm not kidding. We celebrate the anniversary of last time we saw electricity. So we are using electric generators. And I don't know if you can see here in the photo. This is the stuff of the ER in Duma. Uh, they, uh, those guys, uh, most of them are volunteers. And they are celebrating the wedding, the wedding day of one of their colleagues here. And they took that photo and asked them, it worth to run the generator for celebrating uh, Yasser, uh, his name is Yasser, uh, celebrate Yasser wedding. And they said, no, we, we like the mobile lights because we use it, as you can see, I don't know how to, no, it's not, uh, okay. 
So we missed, we missed a photo. They use the mobile light uh, when, they, when they run out of fuel and, and there is no electric generator, they use the mobile light to treat people. So they, they like the, the mobile light. There is no signal, so your mobile, you can use it uh, when you have set internet satellite uh, for Viber, WhatsApp, etc., Skype, but there is no signal. So uh, another usage for the, uh, for the mobile phone is to use the light to treat people. Um, and people always ask me, how, how, how would the life inside besieged areas look like? Without electricity, without pure water, without food, how, how could all those numbers of people um, about a million lives in besieged area, how could they live? It's, it's not too hard to, to know how. Just uh, take a taxi and uh, ask him to take you to a villa in the mountain and ask him to go back. Don't tell anyone and cut off the electricity of this villa and just try to make a, a cup of coffee. After two days, you will miss your coffee a lot, but you can't survive without coffee. But how about food? How about medication, how about pure water, how about heating in the winter. Uh, some kids in the, in the Eastern Ghouta, and I can, I can remember, some kids don't know what's the AC, what is the air condition, what's this box in the, the, in the, in the, in the wall, what, what does it do? Because they didn't see it work before. Uh, my kid, when he arrived to Turkey, when he uh, saw the banana, he didn't know what's the banana. He don't know what, what's the banana. But that, that's not, not everything. Siege is killing everything inside besieged areas. And people are trying to use anything to survive. You can see here in this photo, sorry, this photo, this car. They are still using this car after a lot of bombing and shelling because it's the only thing that they have. You can see you, you will live in the dark ages when you are living in, the, in, in besieged areas. But imagine the villa, what your main concern will be just to feed your kids, just to, to provide medication for them, just to make them survive. Actually, there's a lot of, of uh, people died from starvation in Syria. This is Rama, she is a three years old girl. Rama uh, have a malnutrition and we made a video about her just to raise awareness about malnutrition inside Syria and we published the video and it was published widely. Then uh, one of the European embassies in Beirut called me asking about the girl, about the video. You know, during the video, she was talking uh, non-understandable words. No, nobody could understand what she's saying. She was crying and, and he was asking about the girl and I began to give him statistics and uh, estimation about the malnutrition inside Syria and how many people died of, uh, from starvation and what are the needs, how you can help. And he said, no, no, what's the name of the girl? Who's her father? And then I realized that he believed, he th thought that he, she is speaking his language and she is stuck in the siege and he's looking to, to save one of his citizens. He said, no, she is Syrian, so she can die silently. Don't take care about it, about her. So that's the, that's the situation the situation in besieged areas. No one wants really to, to change the situation. No one really uh, wants to, to provide services for those civilians who are stuck in the besieged areas. Uh, you will always uh, try to have alternative solution. 
You know, now in my area, uh, in Eastern Ghouta, there is, uh, the population now is about 400,000 people. There is 5,000 who lost their limbs because of usage of cluster bombs, mines, airstrikes, all that, all that kind of weapons. And you know, last, just last four months when the Russian intervention began, uh, the number of, uh, of people who lost their limbs raised a lot, increased a lot because of usage of, of cluster bombs. You can imagine that's the way we can give him artificial limb. Smuggling medication inside besieged area is a very dangerous thing. You can smuggle some food, okay, you can go through the checkpoints with some food, but smuggling uh, medication is very, very dangerous, and it's more dangerous than, than weapons sometimes. Than weapons some, sometimes. So, uh, I, I would say again that uh, the, the siege is, is killing every uh, thing in, inside uh, the area. And even my area has some local resources because there is agriculture, but we are dying in different ways. Just last two weeks, we lost two patients uh, in the dialysis unit. We don't have uh, dialysis supplies, so we lost two patients. And we lost a 12 years old girl. Her name is Noura Angele. She had TB, you can imagine TB. We are in the 21st century and we don't have medication for TB inside Eastern Ghouta. Yes, we have some food because it's, it, there is many agriculture in this area. It's not like Madaya was too close and, and there, is, there is no uh, farms to get uh, foods, etc. So what we will do if you were besieged after three years, you will, be, you will, you will begin to ask for help. What did the UN do? She could made seven entries, three entries the employees of UN came inside this, this besieged area, and the other four, it was, done, it was implemented by SARC, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent. Uh, they came just 1% 1 1 of the need, and vaccination enough for 40%. Just imagine the, the, the situation of the doctors. You have to decide who will take the vaccination and who will not. If you are a father and you have two kids, and they said to you, give me a choice, give me, give me a decision. Who from your kids will have vaccination and who will not have the chance? It's too hard to decide. So if, if, you, get, if you didn't get 100% of vaccination, it's besieged. And it's, it's too hard to deal with, with, with the situation. So what, went, what happened? It, it, the story of the end didn't uh, finish yet. Here's the convoy was targeted by airstrike. Two of the seven convoys were, uh, was, were targeted by airstrike. And last May, May 2015, we lost Isra. This is Isra. Now, this is Ahmed holding hair, and this is Hamze. They are volunteers of SARC, Syrian Arab Crescent, and they are stuck in the besieged area. And the, the organization asked them to leave, and they said no. We will stay here, we will be stuck in the siege, and we serve people, and you have to come to help us. We will not go to, to the Damascus to live in Damascus, non-besieged areas. And we lost Isra in that, in that entry, it was last May. Imagine no statement, no declaration from the UN that they were targeted, and it's not the first time. It's a convoy. And then... The situation is the same. I'm talking about Eastern Ghouta 
Eastern Ghouta lived about seven to eight months, the same situation what, what we heard about in Madaya. I think everyone here heard about what's happening in Madaya. And then the, the, things, the things began to be, 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 be became uh, not better, not worse than before, because people began to have their alternative solution, as I mentioned. We, we, have, we, we are uh, manufacturing many kinds of medicines. We are producing the artificial limb that you saw. We have a factory which is producing gas inside Isanguta, many agriculture. But, but till now, it's besieged. What happened in Isanguta happened before in Homs, and it's happening now in Madaya, and will happen tomorrow in Ma'adamiya, and the tell is, is, tell is in the way. There's about 1 million now in Syria, and just last 10 days, uh, thousands of families are stuck on the, on the Turkish borders. You do you know why? They, are, they live in, in, in Aleppo, and they used to receive barrel bombs, chemical attacks, uh, airstrikes, all kinds of weapons, but they didn't, but they didn't flee. Now there is a threat for their areas to be besieged. Siege will kill everything. You can't hide from airstrike. You can go under the ground to, to hide from a barrel bomb. But if you ha don't have food or vaccination, you cannot hide anyway. You cannot go anyway, any place. But still, what, what do you think we need? Breaking the siege will not be by a convoy. And I said, because siege is killing everything, convoy will not break the siege. Uh, and we, we need that, there is a resolution about besiegement, about uh, the siege. We need that resolution from the Security Council to be implemented and to have their uh, monitoring mechanism for uh, them. And uh, we need that the basic needs like uh, food and vaccination, like medicine, it's, it's not a matter to wait for a negotiation or for a deal between the, two, the, 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 the parties. And I think supporting development and local resources to make sustainable projects inside those besieged areas is something very important. Here, still the, there is life there. People want to live. They are playing football. And they watch the FIFA Cup. People are still there and want to live. And I want to, my dream is to, to come back and practice dentistry. I miss dentistry. I could have asylum after now one year outside of this besieged area. I go around the world, Europe and here several times, talking about besiegement and about airstrike against civilians. And I, I don't want to have asylum. I want to go back to Syria. So please help me. Thank you very much. Thank you, doctor, for those comments. Valerie, I'll move to you, please. Thank you, yeah. Um, yes, we appreciate you coming again uh, to talk about siege. Uh, hopefully, someday you can come. We can all come to the Atlantic Council and talk about butterflies and rainbows. Um, uh, it's, it's sad to have to come back to talk about the same problem, which not only is not making progress, but is getting worse. Um, so. As was mentioned, I'm the executive director of the Syria Institute, and uh, I'm going to give you today an overview of the, the report that we just launched uh, in uh, concert with our, our partner organization on this project. This PAX um, is a Dutch NGO, and the project is Siege Watch. Uh, it was inspired from um, a report last year that I uh, had the privilege to work on with the Syrian American Medical Society called 
slow death about the besieged areas. And that, that report um, was written because of a recognition that what's happening on the ground in besieged areas uh, from groups working there is, is not what's being reported by the United Nations. Uh, the situation is much worse, it is much bigger. And uh, because of that, we felt the need to do independent monitoring. So that's what the Siege Watch project is now. Uh, we started it in the fall. We put up a website in December that has an interactive map of all the besieged areas in Syria, which we keep updated with reports from the ground. And we'll be doing a series of quarterly, quarterly reports. Uh, the first one, as I said, launched yesterday. Um, and so the project works. We have an extensive network of contacts on the ground that we built and continue to maintain. Uh, and we, most of them are affiliated with local councils or another local authority in each of the besieged areas. We, um, we have them submit regular surveys that ask about basic things like the cost of goods, if they're available at all, about access restrictions, if they've changed, about deaths due to siege, population movement. So we want to keep track of, of what's happening in each of these areas so that we can provide some independent counter information um, directly from the ground to, to what's being underreported dramatically by the UN. So uh, let me give you, I guess, the definition. And we use the exact same definition of siege as the United Nations, the UN OCHA, which monitors these. The definition is, for the purposes of the Syria conflict, a besieged area is an area surrounded by armed actors with the sustained effect that humanitarian assistance cannot regularly enter and civilians, the sick and wounded, cannot regularly exit the area. So this is the criteria that we use. Um, with all these surveys, in our, our first baseline survey, we received responses from about 30 areas and we've continued to expand our network since then. Uh, we find that there are a number of common characteristics among all of the areas that are besieged by the Syrian government, which is almost all the areas in Syria that are besieged, um, and Deir Zor, which the UN says is besieged by ISIS, but which um, people on the ground will tell you is besieged by both the Syrian government and ISIS, which are both preventing. Um, ISIS prevents food from coming in, the Syrian government prevents civilians from exiting. So all of these areas um, share common characteristics. One you've heard about is, is deprivation of basic um, goods needed for survival, food, electricity, water, medicine, um, violence. These areas are frequently, um, you know, there are a lot of them, but overall a lot of them are very active areas in terms of bombings, in terms of shellings. The chemical, the big chemical attack in 2013 that you're all probably familiar with, those were all besieged areas that were hit around Damascus. And to this day, they continue to be besieged. And some of them continue to be hit with chemical weapons. Um, you find economic collapse in the besieged areas and, and the traditional economy has been replaced by economy of siege that is based on um, extortion Goods are sold across the checkpoints. Oftentimes, the, the Syrian government has turned this into a money-making enterprise, where they'll allow certain traders to go in um, to maybe the one functioning checkpoint with certain amount of goods, not enough for the population, and they'll sell it at exorbitant, like thousand times markup in some cases, um, as a as an extractive mechanism. And this this loophole is enough for the UN to not consider an area besieged, um, which is is we think is probably not. Um, a, good, a good loophole and should be closed. We don't think it's very accurate. And then you also, another part of that economy is smuggling. 
um, and then local production in areas that have access to agricultural lands, which some, some besieged areas are more urban and they don't. Uh, you find that there's massive displacement in uh, the besieged areas, people obviously moving out, and then within the wider siege cordons, like in eastern Gouda, you see people being displaced from one besieged community to another. Um, in, as in opposition-controlled areas across the country, there are local control mechanisms, um, local governance in the absence of, of central government, uh, local councils, and then you also have armed groups active in many, but honestly not all of the besieged communities. Um, and then I guess two aspects that may not be quite as obvious that we found. One is the adjustment. You're talking about areas, some of which Daraya uh, in Western Gouda has been besieged since late 2012. So multiple years on end without access to the outside world. And Daraya has never been once reached with humanitarian aid. Um, so people have begun to cope and, and learn to de deal with the primitive lifestyle without electricity. They, they've gone back to the Stone Ages. And because of that, in some cases, you see a slight increase in um, quality of life as you become better at uh, Stone Age practices, ways to cook your food, uh, ways, to, ways to deal without electricity. Um, and then the, the final aspect is recruitment. We find that in the besieged areas, um, unemployment is, is high. In some, in some communities, it's 100%. Uh, so you have a lot of disaffected, uh, angry, abandoned people. And they are very heavily recruited, uh, both by extremist groups and also by the Syrian government, which tries to get um, people to, to join its militias. So you, f you find these pulls from, from both ends. Uh, and this is a problem that is going to be around for a long time. So it uh, shouldn't be ignored by the international community. So this map up here shows you the general locations of the, the currently besieged areas in Syria. Um, as of yesterday, we added Eastern Aleppo City to our watch list. Uh, so that will be on the map possibly because of the, the regime and Russian offensive threatens approximately 300,000 people with siege in Eastern Aleppo. Um, I'm going to go quickly through these areas in, in a little bit more detail. We encourage you to go check out our report, siegewatch.org, to get more details on them. This is eastern This is Damascus, and uh, you see the arrow there pointing to it. Um, in blue, we have our watch list areas, uh, although Altal, at least, is, is, we believe is completely besieged and should be considered as such. We just don't have the data yet to, to uh, draw that inference. Um, all of the red and green are besieged areas. The red are the only ones that the UN um, OCHA has acknowledged as besieged, which doesn't really make any sense based on their own criteria surrounded by armed actors, because it would seem to suggest that the Syrian government is right smack dab in the middle of opposition-controlled Eastern Ghouta just besieging a couple communities. So this is part of, there's a lot of common sense um, issues with their reporting. Um, and so the total population of Damascus, this is Damascus City and Rif Damascus that's under siege, is about um, half a million, a little over half a million, uh, 534,000. Uh, the UN only acknowledges 181,000 of those. This is Holmes. You see Holmes City there. And then the northern portion of Holmes Governorate is under siege. Uh, the siege isn't quite as strict. It's a much larger um, rural area, kind of like parts of eastern Ghouta. But this has actually gotten worse in the past week or two. Uh, the Russian and 
backed Syrian government offensive is not just in Aleppo. They've, they've really picked up the pace in a lot of places, and that includes uh, closing the smuggling routes in this large rural area that used to sustain life. Um, and they had a rough winter that killed a lot of crops. So this siege is about to, we have it ranked at a lower um, intensity, but it uh, is potential to change to a much more life threatening situation in terms of starvation. Um, you, you do have people in these areas that are under lower intensity siege dying from lack of medication um, and sometimes cold due to lack of electricity, but starvation is increasingly becoming a factor for Northern Homes Governorate. And we have about 365,000 people in this area. Um, here's Idlib, Idlib city. Uh, we don't have any direct siege watch data. This is the only siege in the country being perpetrated by um, opposition armed groups. Uh, it started last year when they took over most of Idlib province. And Fu and Kafraya are these, these small towns to the north of Idlib city that are pro-government and uh, got left behind and unattached from the um, main government ground forces. So they've been under siege. Uh, the intensity here is much lower. They've received um, airdrops of, of aid supplies from the Syrian government. And uh, smuggling in general, I mean, uh, smuggling is easier when you, the Syrian government has a better military capacity to enforce sieges because of its air support and its overwhelming military force. Um, Deir Azor is a little bit controversial. Um, so the UN acknowledges Deir Azor, these su several suburbs, uh, neighborhoods of the city are under siege. It says they're under siege by ISIS. Um, people there, will tell you, as I mentioned, they're under siege by the Syrian government and ISIS. Those in green are the neighborhoods. Um, red is the general area the Syrian government controls. Uh, we see the exact same thing here as in the Eastern Ghouta and other government besieged areas where the regime um, will force people who want to escape to pay extremely high bribes, basically. Um, and there are a lot of people who would try and escape even to the ISIS controlled areas to, to flee the siege, which is becoming quite intense. Um, so this area has estimated about 200,000. I think that's lower now. It needs to be, because there was a fourth neighborhood that was recently taken over um, by ISIS, so it's no longer under siege. Uh, that was just to the north. Um, so here you can find this in our report, is our complete table of besieged areas with the population estimates we're able to provide. Uh, when we didn't have a firm estimate or couldn't, couldn't come up with an estimate, we just left it blank. So you can see that there's a bit of an under um, estimating on our part. Uh, and with this, um, we come up with over a million living under siege in Syria. So we think that the reporting is, is very important. Um, and we think that the under-reporting by the UN is probably due to political considerations. Uh, but it's very obvious that this, the crisis is bigger. Um, and it's, it's important because the aid, uh, they wanna try and get in. You need to know how many people are there. It's important because this is a record of war crimes that are being committed. And it's important to recognize people exist uh, who, who already feel trapped and cut off from the world. Um, so in conclusion, uh, this report found that the crisis is big. It's much bigger. That's human-made. It's getting worse, and the vast majority of the sieges are imposed by the Syrian government. 
and it's discussed more in the report, um, the details of this, but we, we also found that the UN's choices, UN OCHA and the humanitarian aid agencies, their decisions with regard to designation and reporting on the besieged areas, also how they handle um, ceasefires and, and participate in forcible population transfers, and then the way that they approach aid delivery in allowing the Syrian government to veto attempts to get aid to, to the areas um, that they themselves are besieging, uh, have actually contributed to this crisis and at this point have allowed it to, to grow, um, so have been used as a weapon of war. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm going to stop here and let Jan Yap talk a little bit about the bigger um, policy implications. Thank you very much. Thank you, Valerie. <laughs> Floor is yours, sir. Okay, thank you. Um, just a few words uh, about us. Pax is a, a Dutch peace organization um, originating from faith-based organizations uh, in the Netherlands. And we are, if anyone knows it, uh, connected to, uh, associated to the, the network of Pax Christi uh, uh, networks. But uh, we developed after being much more a movement in the 70s and 80s into uh, an organization really working professionally with uh, civil society and peace activists in uh, many different conflict uh, areas. We're working now in about 15 different conflict uh, uh, areas around the world, including in the Middle East, in uh, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and Israel and Palestine, and on global issues like uh, bans on cluster munition and landmines, uh, uh, on nuclear disarmament, and on the uh, regulations of uh, extractive industries in conflict um, uh, areas. So it's a quite uh, wide range of things we are doing. What I'm doing there is advocacy work on, on the Middle East. Um, Pax has been working in Syria uh, way before the, uh, the revolution or the uprising, when the conflict started in 2003. Since 2003, we've been working with very small, very brave, civil society um, activists. So we have quite a history of, being, of working there, mainly with people from the Damascene intellectual circles. That was our main, uh, uh, main focus. Um, but that shifted, of course, when in 2011, the, uh, uh, the whole conflict uh, started. Uh, and we shifted our, f uh, we started to work with uh, new civil society groups and also with local councils that were set up in different places uh, in, uh, in Syria. Um, then in the first years of the conflict, our focus was very much on uh, assisting these civil society initiatives and working on a sort of de facto transition uh, that they were trying to create in, in Syria. Um, and we're still doing that. We're still supporting some hopeful uh, brave initiatives that are still there. We are supporting a few schools in Aleppo. We are at this moment very worried about what's happening to them. Uh, we are supporting um, a community center in uh, Zarakab. So quite a few of these very smaller projects where we're still working with civil society activists. But our main focus is getting more and more on the question of protection of civilians in, uh, in Syria. Um, 
we thought it would be good to uh, to build further on the work that SAMS has been known with, with the slow death report. Uh, and we're very happy that Valerie was uh, enthusiastic to uh, continue this work with us. Um, and we thought it, it, it's really important to look at least at one of the aspects of the Syrian conflict much more closely. Um, and we thought that focusing on the sieges or so is a way to explain a lot of the conflict or what it means for civilians to be in this conflict in, in, in a nutshell, so to say. Um, we got some critical questions why we are so focused on numbers. Uh, and, and actually, we hate being focused on numbers. Uh, every civilian caught in conflict, every child dying of starvation is one, it's too, too much. Uh, as we often said, there are not 250 or 250,000 civilian casualties, there are 250 times uh, a brother, a sister, someone's teacher or friend or dentist who have been uh, victims. Of this, of this conflict. It's two and a half, it's so many times a person. Uh, but still we think it's important to do this. Why? It's to show how, how much this is a pattern, how much uh, besieging communities is a, a structural phenomena of the uh, conflict in Syria. How much starvation really is used as a weapon of war. Uh, this is not um, a sort of unpleasant coincidence of the conflict, it's, it's systematic. It's part of the, uh, uh, it's, it's part of the policy and it's clearly mainly part of the policy of the uh, Assad regime. Uh, we also do that because we hope in this way we can recognize what is the trend, is the situation getting worse or is it getting better? Well, so far we only have indications that the situation is getting worse. But we hope, of course, by having quarterly reports and having this map which we try to update whenever we can, whenever we get new information, to be able to show what the trend is. Uh, we had a, a, a little spark of optimism, of course, in the beginning of this year with the start of the Geneva uh, process and we thought, well, uh, this should show whether any sort of political process actually has an impact for civilians uh, uh, on the ground. Um, we think it, the, the main thing we hope to achieve at this moment is that, first of all, that the, the problem of besieged areas is recognized in its full uh, size, in its full extent. Um, and we hope that whatever is there of a political process, how pessimistic we are about the political process anyway, but whatever is there is used as a sort of momentum to make clear that uh, lifting the sieges and a few other steps like stopping aerial bombardments on, on, uh, on populated areas, um, that these are absolute, necessities for any sort of political process. There will not be a political process if there is no steps uh, in this. And this is not because the 
Syrian opposition needs an excuse to run away from the negotiations. That's not the, the, the situation. The situation is the Syrian opposition will have no leverage on the people in Syria if they can't show that anything has improved uh, uh, there. So there, they really need to show that there is uh, progress. And, and we, your government, uh, our European governments do have to do whatever we can to, uh, to, to push the allies of the Assad regime, to push Assad in, uh, in turn, uh, to change something in this situation. If, if they really want some sort of a political process, which Iran and Russia are saying, uh, then they should uh, push the Assad regime to lift some of the, uh, to, to lift sieges and to stop aerial bombardments. Um, that will be a huge task, but that's what we're there for to, uh, to remind them. Um, I think we have raised with quite a few other organizations about a year ago the situation in Yamuk. Uh, we had, since a long time, good relations with Palestinian activists and civil society groups in Syria who were direct witness, were directly involved in, in all the efforts in, in Yamuk. And we saw how the immense international attention at a certain moment for Yamuk. Everyone re uh, remembers the, 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 the iconic picture of this huge mass of people in Yamuk waiting to get some, some food. Um, it did have some effect. It showed that even the Assad regime uh, uh, does feel that sort of pressure. I think we say that again with Madaya, that a lot of international attention helps a little bit to get some. It didn't lift the sieges. The situation is still very terrible, but at least there were some convoys that getting in, and there is at least attention. But I think the mistakes that we are, or we, but at least Western governments are making over and over again is that if there is one very tiny positive signal, they sort of release the, the pressure on the Assad regime. Well, that's what we dare for to remind them to, remain, to, to continue this pressure on the Assad regime and its allies, uh, that these are war crimes that need to be stopped. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Now uh, we're moving on to uh, the question and answer portion, which I'm going to start actually by uh, posing a short question to each one of you. Uh, my first question is uh, to Dr. Katoub. Uh, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about how these sieges are enforced and how it is that they can be circumvented, compromised, is this different across different areas? Uh, my question to Valerie would be, uh, what do you see as the uh, sort of criteria for when it is a party decides that this place needs to be besieged rather than captured, ignored, etc., or just bombed? Uh, and do you think Eastern Aleppo meets those criteria and why? And uh, finally, uh, to uh, Mr. Yanyap, I guess my question is, in your advocacy efforts, what is the single greatest obstacle you've come up against? And do you imagine that this is, will improve in the next coming months, given the military situation? 
or uh, or get worse. Please, Dr. Kato. Okay, uh, excuse my little English, so please, if you can uh, uh, explain. Uh, basically, keep me tabba, al-hisar. Yeah, oh, okay, okay. So, uh, first of all, uh, the regime began to cut all the main roads which uh, lead you to the, the, to the area which, uh, which is, were decided to be besieged. Uh, especially in uh, huge areas like uh, Eastern Ghouta, because Eastern Ghouta, uh, just, uh, just the eastern side is about 35 kilometers. So it's too hard to put checkpoints around those 35 kilometers. Uh, he began to put mines, all the, all the road, cameras, because there is, uh, there is a, a, a train uh, line, so you, uh, he, uh, there is electricity around all the, uh, the trains, so in every uh, point he have a camera watching the, the roads. Uh, the regime have no uh, access every day for this area because they put the mines and it's uh, remote control mines, not... Uh, mm. So when, whenever the camera catch anything moving, he began to bomb the, uh, the mines. After that, helicopters is monitoring uh, the roads if there is anything uh, moving. Uh, there is a snipers also uh, in uh, in the areas which is uh, about one to two kilometers. Snipers in both sides can can watch the uh, the roads. Uh, yes, there is some deals. Uh, sometimes you can deal with the with checkpoints. You can pay them uh, money, but then you will realize that it's it's not it's not going to the to the pockets of of the officers. It's going to the regime themselves, and they are mm -hmm. buying weapons with it. And I can remember when when, when the problem of uh, of feeding in in Eastern Ghouta regime began to to sell us some uh, flowers. Uh, it was about uh, 800 uh, Syrian pounds, uh, Syrian lira, while it, wa it was about uh, just 12 Syrian lira in other areas. So you can imagine. So all that difference will go to the regime and he will buy palms and <laughs> pump us with that. Uh. So then people began to find their alternative solution like digging tunnels uh, under the ground, uh, invest in agriculture, everything, but the regime is, the, the, the siege is not just closing the, the, the roads. When he realized that there is uh, an area which, uh, where there is agriculture inside it, he began to bomb it with, with Nabalm to burn, to burn the, the products. Another thing, uh, 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 in my area, uh, there is many agriculture uh, products, so in every spring, the regime began to allow some kinds of the same products to, in, to come inside Eastern Ghouta. So the farmer who worked all the winter with high price of fuel, trying to implement agriculture project, then there is another product, the same product with lesser price came from outside. So he will never do it again. The, the, so it's not just about closing the roads. It, okay. There is many, many, uh, it's a strategy. Very, very interesting, a bit dark. Uh, Valerie? Yeah, yeah, it is dark. Mm. Um, and uh, so your question was about which areas they besieged um, as part of the strategy. And, you know, the war, the war has changed. Uh, the strategy of sieges has evolved along with the rest of the conflict. Um, and I think you'll probably see it continue to evolve now that 
you know, quite frankly, there's very little actual Syrian military left. Most of the forces fighting for the, for the military are foreign Shia militias um, recruited by Iran. Uh, it started because the Syrian military was not strong enough to capture uh, much of Syria. And if you can think back, there was a point at time in late 2012 when a lot of people were predicting Assad was going to fall because of the level of defections. The, um, they, just, they just didn't have the strength. Uh, and that's when sieges started. Uh, we can trace it back to when Iran came heavily into um, the Syrian conflict and kind of took over the strategy, started recruiting militias for the regime, both national and foreign. And uh, the, the strategy turned out to be a very effective weapon for the Syrian government um, that, that couldn't forcibly take over these areas. So the strategy was, let's instead, we, we can enforce the boundary of them and we will starve them out. And it's, it's evolved a little bit into this um, extortive practice for the regime. It's a win-win for them if they starve now, if they starve a year from now, and we make profit in the meantime, which is so twisted, right, that people are paying money that's going to their own siege and, and bombing. Um, uh, that's, Madai is a little different because it's actually Hezbollah enforcing the siege, and so you saw it get much worse much quicker. Mm -hmm. It's also a smaller area, but Hezbollah had no interest in extracting and still doesn't. Mm -hmm. People are dying mm -hmm. to this day in Madaya. Um, its, its goal was just to depopulate very quickly, and that's the ultimate strategy here, uh, although, we, again, we may see this changing now that Russia has kind of shifted the balance of power. Uh, they may not need to wait for these areas, this collective punishment strategy to pay off in terms of depopulation. It's, it's ultimately, it's an ethnic cleansing strategy, but that's a, kind of a medium-term goal. Um, it, Aleppo, for that reason, is an excellent candidate for them because it's a very, it's a large populated area. It has been most of it, uh, the areas that have been besieged by the Syrian government in, in Damascus countryside and homes have been these large populated areas um, that, are, that are just quite frankly too difficult for the military to just capture by force. Thank you. That's very helpful. The greatest obstacle for our advocacy work, well, that's a tough one. Uh, of course, one of the, the very large obstacles is the, um, uh, the complete lack of unanimity in the uh, UN Security Council, although they did pass quite a number of resolutions on that. Uh, uh, but still, of course, there's the, the difference between Russia supported by China on the one side and Western countries with maybe France is the most focal one on the other side. Uh, that has paralyzed the, uh, um, uh, the international community uh, to a large extent. Um, but we also have the feeling that uh, many of the, the Western governments, to some extent, have internalized these paralysis. And that they are so convinced that there is very little they can do that they stop thinking about ways to do, uh, to do something. Uh, all of Europe is uh, looking at the U.S. for some sort of leadership and uh, wondering where, uh, uh, where it is. Um, the two other European uh, Security Council members might still sometimes take a bit of their, a role of their own, uh, but also lack some, um, some sort of leadership. I think this, this sort of internal paralysis is, is uh, really quite, um, quite strong. Uh, 
and it's in a way understandable. Uh, we always so we also find it quite hard to think of uh, the next steps that we can really take to change the situation. Um, but I think there is no reason to give up. There is a reason to continue. What we're confronted with is, I mean, more and more we see politicians uh, um, and people, uh, well, how would you say, it? Uh, think tanks talking about a realistic uh, approach. Uh, we need Assad to fight ISIS. We need Russians to fight ISIS. So we might need to find a way to deal with that. Well. From Europe <laughs> speaking, uh, we see what this realistic approach is bringing us. It's bringing us uh, the situation where a large part of the Syrian population actually is trying to move to Europe uh, uh, because that's the only place that in this sort of realistic future scenario for Syria, there is probably not going to be much place for a lot of its citizens. Uh, and that will be that is already an increasing problem we are having to deal with, and it will only grow in this, uh, in this way. Thank you. Right, at this point we will move uh, to audience Q&A. I'll be taking some questions. I'd ask that you briefly identify yourselves when you're uh, called upon, and you uh, certainly have prerogative of directing your questions to a particular speaker. My only request is that you actually make them questions and you keep them rather brief, and that way we'll be able to incorporate and include as many as many people as possible. So please raise your hands if you have a question. Tyler. Thank you. Thank you all for for being here. My name is Tyler Thompson um, with United for Free Syria. Um, I heard recently, um, I believe it was a representative from the Syrian government that the only people left in this question is for anyone who can answer it. Um, I heard that the only uh, uh, representative of the Syrian government said the only people left in these besieged areas are uh, terrorist fighters, their wives, and their children. Um, and so it's okay to, to trap them under siege. So I would just ask the panel to respond to that assertion and also, if true, whether that even matters for humanitarian uh, purposes. Thanks. Yeah. So the first one is a question about Factual, factual question, but the second one is an interesting analytical question. So what if actually they're only fighters, and what difference does that make in terms of both classification and policy implications? I defer to whichever one of you wants to tackle it first. Well, I, I, will, I, will, uh, I will answer. I'm from a besieged areas, and I was besieged. I'm not a fighter. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and he still supports uh, <laughs> the medical. I mean, all you have to do is look at the social media feed of any organization, hospital, local council, um, to see photos of, of the women and children. Although there are certainly men that are also not fighters, still there. Um, many of them are, are talking to the media, media activists. Many of them are reporting to Siege Watch. Um, the second part of the question is it actually, it does matter. Um, A, that's not true. And the Syrian government's definition of terrorist includes everyone who's not pro-government. So their definition of terrorist is wrong. Um, they, I think they consider SAM, Syrian American Medical Society, to be terrorists. This is a, this is a DC-based American nonprofit that does medical aid, terrorists. So uh, no, there are many non-fighters 
in the besieged areas, but from an international law perspective, uh, siege is not illegal as a strategy of war against um, your enemy, where it becomes a violation of international humanitarian law, international human rights law, is the civilian component. Uh, collective punishment is a war crime. Uh, prevention of civilians from medical aid is a war crime. Prevention of uh, aid workers to food, access, any human, uh, there's dozens and dozens of things that are, are war crimes. So yeah, it, does, it doesn't matter. I didn't know that. It's interesting. Sir in the left. Hi, uh, my name is Dimitri. Uh, thank you very much for your presentations. Um, uh, my grandfather fought in World War II, and I, he said it's impossible to describe or depict war. So, and I think that's kind of applicable here. So my deepest condolences to what you're going through there in Syria. So uh, I have two questions. Uh, first, about the, in the report, and Mr. Khatoub, you, uh, Dr. Khatoub, you mentioned that the UN um, people did not report their convoy being bombed. So, and uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to mispronounce your name. It's Ms. Sibylla or? Sabella. Sabella, sorry, yeah. And you talked about that the UN uh, misreporting things is political. I'm wondering if you could just comment how that works on a practical level. Is it an individual that doesn't report what's going on? Is it the higher up that silences him? How is that actually happening? And my second question, I hope it's appropriate, is to Dr. Katoub. Did you support the revolution originally when it started? And if you knew now, if you knew then what you knew now, would you still support it? Just trying to gauge what kind of, if this was something that the, it was really the general population or it was a big movement or it was something that just started and then got out of control and couldn't be stopped. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you very much. Well, actually, uh, regarding the reporting from the UN, I, I think there is, there is many data, there is many reports, but they are not using it. That's it. So there is a lot of reports. UN have a lot of reports about the attacks and they were there, they, they were targeted the, the, one of the UN convoy in May 2014 was targeted by airstrike, and the, 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 the other convoy which you saw your, uh, the, the photo from is the SARC convoy and was targeted, and both the, of the incidents was not, were not uh, reported. Regarding the revolution, yes, I, I, I was from the, be the beginning. Uh, I received some emails asking for dignity, freedom, liberty from my friends, uh, asking people to go and demonstrate, and uh, my, my town, Duma, uh, is the second town where the revolution began. It began in Damascus, Dara'a, and then Duma, the third, uh, the third town, the third town, actually. Uh, it began in Damascus because, but, uh, you know, Damascus is very controlled by the regime. So uh, what we ask is dignity, even not, uh, not the regime to go out or having <laughs> dignity and freedom and liberty. Uh, and uh, actually, um, I was not brave enough to share all the activities. But when I began to saw that my neighbors, who are, I, I know them very well, my cousins began to fall down, began to die, began to be shot because of just they asked for liberty. Uh, and to be arrested, my colleagues in the hospitals was arrested. My, 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 our hospital, uh, which, which was a private hospital inside uh, Duma, uh, was targeted several times, and the regime forces come and arrested many people. They arrested people from, from the, the operation room, you can imagine, from the intensive care unit. They pulled people from under the, uh, the ventilator and took them. Wow. 
you have to, I have to participate. I have to, 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 to share the people what, what they're doing. I just, in the beginning, yes, I was not a lot encouraged, but then I, I realized that he's killing people just because they ask for freedom. Yeah, you cannot turn people after seven or eight months, dealing with them that way, that many of them began to, to go to military activities. And a lot is still now uh, working with the local councils. There is, there is another view inside Syria which no one knew about it. The local councils, the uh, local NGOs, local CSOs who are working very hard to, to, for, in peace building and in women, women protection and in medical aid. Nobody knew about, uh, about that. All the news is about ISIS and Assad and chemical attacks. But I, I think uh, uh, the agencies from, uh, from the United States, USAID agencies and UN agencies know a lot about it because they are partners with them. And I think this, this particular part of Syria has to be shown for the people in the, in the media. It's more important than, than the killing. Um, Do you have something yeah, to add? Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, a lot of uh, media reports have come out recently, um, some good investigative journalism. I mean, the UN has been very opaque about exactly how they operate in Syria, and it's been possible to do that because they've, they broke with their own internal news agency, IRAN, and because most of the international community can't get access to Syria. Um, so from what's come to light recently, it appears that what happens, uh, all these UN agencies, the humanitarian agencies, have offices in Damascus still. And I, they've been you know, on the record um, and, and quoted as such, so I don't think it's controversial to say that in many cases they have made the deliberate strategy or decision that um, they think that their best option to reach anyone in Syria is to continue to work and cooperate with the Syrian government because they think getting aid to some people um, is better than getting aid to no one and they think that would be the alternative. And that's been a strategy to collaborate with the Syrian government. Um, what, what that's led to is that the Syrian government can manipulate where the aid goes and who it goes to. And I think it's part of that same decision that has, has bled into the actual reporting, where to keep the Syrian government happy. Um, we saw it in the 2016 humanitarian ask that this goes to the international community. They did things like removing the word besieged, and it's not a conflict, it's, it's a crisis. There's no conflict in Syria, and things like those that are they're very clear um, compromises with, with the Syrian government. Uh, beyond that, I'd love to hear the UN you know, be a little bit more um, open with exactly how these decisions are made, but it's, it's clear that they are being made still. Thank you. There was someone at the back. I wasn't able to identify them. Was it you, was it you sir? I guess it must be, it must be <laughs> you. And then I'll also take a second question from Mr. Norman. Hi, my name is Brian. I'm with an international NGO called SOS Children's Villages. Um, we had some reports from our colleagues in Syria about the situation for uh, children in besieged areas. For example, in eastern Ghouta, uh, Ghouta, we heard reports that some of the children were being sent by their parents to cross into western Ghouta, um, and then they would work for the regime for the day and get paid in food, and then smuggle the goods back into eastern Ghouta. And sometimes on the way back, they would get intercepted um, by the people who control Eastern Ghouta, and they would be uh, jailed for 
allegedly collaborating with uh, the government. Another report we heard from Madaya when one of my colleagues interviewed a little girl was that she would be asked by her family to uh, sneak out of uh, Madaya, go over some hills, maybe mountains, uh, into areas where she could actually get some food to bring back to her family because children are smaller, more agile, and less likely to be um, caught by um, whichever force is besieging the town. So I'm wondering if, uh, if you guys could talk a little bit about how uh, it's like for children to live in a besieged area, not just the fact that they're more vulnerable simply because they're children, but also how they're being, I don't want to use sounds a little bit exploitative, but how uh, they're helping, let's say, their families by being sent out uh, and sneaking around to get to get food. That's an interesting question. I'll take a second one as well from Mr. Norman. Uh, thanks very much, Faisal. Um, I'm Benjamin Norman. I'm the uh, Middle East desk at the British Embassy here in Washington. Um, just firstly, Jan, to, to your point about the fact that some governments uh, think that Assad might be the solution either to ISIL or to the refugee um, crisis. I can't speak for other countries in Europe, but for my own country, um, we will never, ever accept that. Um, yeah. And if we have anything to say about it, if I have anything to say about it, the only place that Assad will be going is The Hague in chains um, to stand crime uh, trial for his many, many crimes. Um, my question is that currently the US government, um, the European Union, the, the British government, um, have a fairly extensive network of um, sanctions regime against the Assad um, uh, regime. One of the things that we wrestle with a lot is that enhancing the sanctions against the Assad government, whilst a useful means of pressuring him um, and sort of uh, exerting uh, pressure on, on, on his activities, um, also has a major humanitarian um, impact. So we tend to focus our sanctions on, say, jet fuel, um, rather than um, fuel oil for, for fires. So my, my question to you is, you know, if you had to choose between the two, I know it's a devil's choice, but if you had to choose between the two, what would you rather us do? Sanction the Assad regime more to put pressure on his government or stick with where we are or even reduce the sanctions in order to potentially make the humanitarian situation in Syria better? Yeah, I'm going to take the prerogative of directing the questions myself. The first one on children to yourself, Doob, yeah. and then Yanya. Uh, Okay, so uh, you are working in child protection in Syria. It's not lucky job, I think, because you are working in in in, in war zone area, and uh, I I believe uh, in wars that things happen everywhere, and military uh, groups, military parties will be involved in besieging in way or another. Yes, we know that. Uh, the 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 problem is. Uh, it's too hard to support those kind of activities, to support kids, support children. You can hardly go through some education and some child protection activities. Like You cannot imagine when you talk about safe space, even to, to the stuff inside. I said, wow, safe space? Safe space inside Syria? Is there any safe space? What was safety? You, can, <laughs> you cannot identify safety for them even. Uh, there's many uh, military groups who are involved also in the in the siege and get uh, a lot of money from the siege, not just the, the regime. We know that. And there's others who are losing their lives, trying to save lives and uh, trying to uh, provide food for the civilians. That's the, re the reality on the ground. Uh, <coughs> 
I, I don't I don't know what we can do for for kids. It's, it's, the life is is horrible. Like I can I can uh, mention an example. Uh, a friend of mine who have uh, a kid 15 years old. He cannot feed him. You can you can you can imagine. He cannot feed him. So he began to work. Do you know what what he began to work? He he, he began to make small deals of of selling bullets and guns. <laughs> 15 years old, and then we, we, we took the, the, the guy and began to, to convince him that the, you cannot do that for your kid. You can, if, you have, if you cannot send him to school, we can find him a job at least. And we began to, 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 to find other solutions for the, the kid, not, not real job, like something, activities with the kids or something like this. He, he wants uh, to eat, so that's the situation. Um, after uh, two months, he c could be no more, and he left uh, the, the job. But it's a volunteer job with, with kids also, uh, some activities. For, he, he left, and he began to work in a bakery. Uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't convince the father that this kid have to, to have school. And he said, he's 15 now. Uh, you can imagine about early marriage inside uh, inside the whole of Syria, not just the uh, besieged area. Uh, and uh, the camps around uh, Syria, uh, we have many reports that uh, the early marriage is, is, is very high in, in Jordan, and the camps uh, in Jordan. So that's the situation. It's war. You know, uh, you know that this is the situation of the kids. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, I know this is the, the, the UK position, and uh, we highly appreciate it. I think that's, that's what we need to keep on there. Um, um, about uh, sanctions, um, we had, uh, I remember we had some discussion with other civil, Syrian civil society activists, uh, and we said, well, we should look at the sanctions and try to lift some of the sanctions with humanitarian impact. And if you look at it closer, we couldn't really identify something which we could, uh, uh, which Europe could lift without giving also a military act uh, advantage to, to Assad regime. It's, that's not, that's really uh, hardly, uh, hardly doable. Um, uh, I think it would also give the, the wrong signal. Um, so, uh, I think there is very little we could do in lifting sanctions to improve the, the, the situation in Syria. Uh, and I also am quite convinced, and I know uh, most of the Syrians are completely convinced of the fact that the, 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 the horrible humanitarian situation in Syria uh, is is maybe only for a very small part a result of, uh, uh, of, of sanctions. Uh, there was a situation where, uh, where Syria could produce its own food. It, it was exporting food, actually. actually uh, there were, um, it, it was, to some extent, a, really, a relatively self-sustainable country. Uh, and it's not the, the sanctions that created that, but it's, it's mainly uh, the conflict itself and the behavior of the, uh, of the regime. Of course, we do run into very weird dilemmas. One is that because 
the sanctions on, on oil exports, but also sanctions on oil exports to Syria, uh, lead to a situation where the Assad regime is buying its oil from ISIS, um, and in this way strengthening both parties that we do not want to be strengthened in, in this uh, situation. But by changing that and, and starting to sell fuel again to Syria, I don't think that would really solve that as a, that dilemma in a, in a good way. Well, thank you, Anyap. Well, technically, uh, we're actually out of time. I know we started a bit late. Uh, those of you who have to leave, I won't feel hurt, but uh, I will take one more question. You've been very patient, so please go ahead. Thank you. Firstly, thank you very much for your insights um, this morning. Um, Valerie, I was wondering if I could ask you a question about your classification. Um, you said about the situation in Derezor being described as a double siege, which I think is, is certainly an, an, an accurate for, from what I've seen. Um, based on research I did for Mercy Corps this summer, um, it seems um, we, we uh, conducted surveys also with re residents living in eastern Ghouta, and um, Actually, every single one of them, um, in response to our question, who benefits from the siege, said both sides benefit. And they described instances of Jaysh al-Islam or other groups um, in the area um, conducting certain measures which might be comparable to how the regime is acting in Deir Azor. I was wondering why you decided to only list uh, Deir Azor as a double siege and to what extent you think it might also apply to other areas. Yeah. Um well, it, I mean, they're very different situations. In Deir Ezzor, the, the Syrian government actually controls checkpoints and prevents access. Um, that's not the case at all in eastern Ghouta. What I think you're describing is groups that, uh, armed groups that are within the siege boundary that are probably in, in control or hoarding of goods and that thereby maybe doing some of their own kind of extortive practices, um, which is, a problem, and it's its own problem. It doesn't mean that they're besieging the area. Um, it, it, so that's why we didn't list it that way, because it, it describes a very different situation. We've actually seen over time in Eastern Ghouta um, those practices evolve. And there was one point in time when I think there were some riots in Duma actually against a hospital that people also felt was hoarding goods because people are hungry and they see an area with warehouses. Um, but in 2015, uh, in these recent surveys, we, we saw people talk about a slight change in Eastern Ghouta in particular, where armed groups also, you know, they had more access to goods and they, they hoarded them and they kept them away from people and people were certainly angry about that. But they noted that the tunneling, um, this is also an adaptation of things. So the tunnels that had been mainly used to smuggle arms and fighters from one place to another and, and in, um, into the area, they actually had been able to expand them and formalize them. So there are now, and uh, people noted this in, in multiple surveys from multiple different areas within Eastern Ghouta, that the, the tunnels had finally been opened up a little bit for humanitarian purposes. The armed groups still control them, but this actually seemed to ease some of the um, frustration people felt with armed groups hoarding of resources because they now allowed, there was actually a formal application process if you wanted to leave um, mainly for medical emergencies, be smuggled into Barze, which is a truce area, 
Um, but they now allow, they have a certain tunnel that is designated for civilians. And this has actually allowed um, more regular supplies of goods to be smuggled in. And so people noted that uh, because the armed groups were smuggling in more supplies in greater volume, uh, they were actually able to compete with the pro-regime traders that were at the, um, the main checkpoint, the Wafidin checkpoint near Duma, and were driving down the price of goods. Not to uh, a normal level, but it was really interesting to see the shift in dynamic. Um, so that's the situation of the armed groups uh, in eastern Ghouta, um, di different than besieging an area. Yeah, that's a good question and a very useful answer. Thank you. We actually have to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much for bringing so much uh, substance to the discussion, all three of you. Uh, and I also admire the passion you bring to your work. So please join me in thanking our guests and in wishing them the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.